All of our thoughts and actions these days, through photos and videos, even our fitness activities, are stored as digital data. Aside from running out of space on our phones, we rarely think about our digital footprint. But humanity has collectively generated more data in the last few years than all of preceding human history. Welcome to Moonshot. I'm Christopher Lawson, and that was bioinformatician Dina Zelinsky speaking at TED earlier this year. And in this episode, we're talking about data storage. Everything on a computer uses data. We save documents and photos, send emails and tweets, we stream music and TV, and watch cat videos without a second thought. But all that data takes up space. And at the moment, most of the world's data lives in large rooms or data centres, filled with hard drives and increasingly tape storage systems. However, even tape storage has a shelf life. Big data has become a big problem. Digital storage is really expensive, and none of these devices that we have really stand the test of time. If you then consider the amount of data we're creating, you can really begin to see the problem that we'll run into. By 2025, it's estimated that each year will generate 175 zettabytes of data, up from around 33 in 2018. That means around 480 exabytes of information will be created every single day. Oh, and in case you're wondering, just one exabyte is the equivalent of one billion gigabytes. If you look at the rate that we're generating data, whether it's our cat videos or IoT sensor logs or um, just just the massive amounts of data that we generate every single day, the rate at which we're generating that data is actually accelerating. Uh, and the rate at which we can make hard drives uh, is growing too, but not as much as the rate that we're generating data. This is Chris Takahashi, senior research scientist at the University of Washington. So what that really means is that in very near future, you know, within 20 years, we either have two choices. We can cover the planet in hard drive factories or we can start throwing away data. Um, and so if you don't want to do either one of those, you're going to need a new technology. And right now, DNA seems like the technology that both has technological traction as well as density. Yes, you heard that right. It turns out DNA might just be the technology that humanity is looking for to solve our data storage problems. After all, DNA holds the information for every living thing on Earth. Soviet scientist Mikhail Neiman wrote about the idea of storing data in DNA in the mid-60s, but there wasn't a real use case until the late 80s, when artist and Harvard scientist Joe Davis unveiled a project called MicroVenus. Joe was very focused on the idea of transmitting messages to extraterrestrial life, and he was looking for something that was durable enough to hold data and withstand space and time. So really what it boils down to three things. You need something that's robust enough to withstand the extremes of the space environment, vacuum, temperature, radiation. And you need something that can remain intact, that can persist for periods that we consider to be geologic time, hundreds of millions of years. The, the universe, even the galaxy, is a very large place. 
and you need something that you can produce hundreds of billions of copies of for hundreds of billions of possible receivers. DNA was his first choice, and so he encoded a picture of an ancient Germanic letter into the DNA of an E. coli bacteria. But Joe wasn't taken very seriously. When I first created Microbenus, my colleagues were saying, back in the 80s, they were saying, oh, well, Joe, this is scientifically interesting, but it's certainly not scientifically relevant. But those colleagues have now changed their tune. In 1999, a secret message was encoded and then decoded in DNA. In 2003, artificial DNA was stored in multiplying bacteria. And in 2007, researchers from the University of Arizona demonstrated a feasible data storage method. And then a breakthrough in 2011. George Church and his team at Harvard stored a 659 kilobyte version of a book in DNA. However, when they tried to recover the information, there were 22 errors when the data was retrieved, which was far too many. Around the same time, Nick Goldman and his team at the European Bioinformatics Institute were holding a lot of meetings, trying to come up with solutions for their institute's dwindling data storage, a problem that was largely generated by DNA. So given DNA was the problem, someone jokingly considered using DNA as their data storage solution. At the end of one of these meetings, we were kind of just joking, saying, if only there was some other way of storing information. Um, that wasn't data centers and electricity consumption and cooling systems uh, and so on. So we kind of turned it around and said, is there some way we could take any data we wanted to store and put that into DNA? And we kind of laughed and said, oh, wouldn't that be funny? And then we said, well, actually, what part of the process can we not do? Well, there isn't one. You know, with, the modern, with advances in the last few years in genome technologies, we can actually do all the things you need to do. And they did. In 2013, Nick's team accurately stored four pieces of information in DNA. They stored all 154 of Shakespeare's sonnets, an audio recording of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, a photo of their lab building, and a PDF file of a groundbreaking research paper by Crick and Watson from 1953 describing the structure of DNA. So we were trying to think of things that would illustrate um, that you would you could use this for archive of valuable information, and I think it worked very well for us as as a kind of PR move that you know each one of those has interested someone, um, but really it's it's just information, right? And that's all it is, information. But before we get into how you go about storing that information in DNA, it's time for a word from our sponsors. Welcome back to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson. And DNA, it's the building blocks of human life. But before we can talk about how it's used to store data, we need to understand how traditional data storage works. Data is stored as lots of binary numbers, a sequence of ones and zeros known as binary code. The combination of these numbers tells a computer what to do. For example, a JPEG file contains a particular series of binary numbers which tells a computer that it's an image. And we do that because computers are good at storing zeros and ones. They can do it with electrical charges or magnetic fields, you know, that are on or off or up or down or something, you know, some binary distinction. 
we can manipulate things really well in computers and then we can decode information. We can go both ways into an MP3 from sound and we can make the sound again using an MP3 file. While the information in computers is stored in a binary way, the information in DNA is stored as letters, G, A, C and T, representing four organic compounds called guanine, adenine, thymine and cytosine. These are called nucleotides and they bond in pairs to form what's known as a double helix structure, also called DNA. Every cell in our body contains DNA as a code of G's, A's, C's and T's, which contain all the information needed to build and sustain any living thing. So to bring it all back to digital data, a string of zeros and ones can tell a computer what to do in the same way that a string of G's, A's, C's and T's can tell a cell what to do. So we invented uh, a code that would do that. And in fact, we didn't, people are, MP3 code is actually a really good code. So we didn't reinvent that wheel. Um, but we started with the binary version that would normally be on your computer and we can invented a code that would take the binary the zero and one representation of any digital information uh, and convert that into something that looks like a's c's g's and t's which would then be the template for making actual physical dna and this process of converting binary code across to dna kind of works like an inkjet printer but instead of spraying different coloured inks um, and mixing them on accurately on different spots on a, on a piece of paper or whatever you want your image on, they use um, the same kind of technology to put the chemicals you need to build a DNA chain on very accurately on a spot on a, on a glass slide, essentially. And you deliver these chemicals one after the other in a, in a cleverly managed process so that the DNA chain grows as you... Uh, add the chemicals sequentially. But it's not yet possible to build long chains of DNA similar to what you might find in a human. So Nick and his team made lots of short ones instead. And so when we invented our code, we also made allowance for the fact that we couldn't store one large file as one large piece of DNA. We wouldn't be able to create that DNA. So we invented a system that would allow us to break that into lots of small pieces create the small pieces of DNA, and then at the end when we read it back, stitch the information back together in a kind of jigsaw um, to get the original message back. To sum this all up, computer language is translated into genetic language, and then back again. If you were ever creating secret codes when you were growing up, it's almost like that, assigning each letter of the alphabet with a symbol, and writing a coded message, which you can then decode if you know the key. And as Nick says, this form of storage has unprecedented benefits. You need less space to store it, uh, and you don't need any energy to store it while it's sitting there. I mean, unlike a data center where typically the disks are all kept spinning all the time and there's lots of electric motors running and they're generating heat, and so you have to cool the whole place down. Whereas DNA is very, very stable for a long period. I mean, years, hundreds of years, even many thousands of years, as, as long as you, uh, essentially as long as you keep it dry uh, and keeping it cold helps as well. So the natural solution is, is to freeze it um, in a dry form and then it will sit there happily for a very long time. Uh, and so a storage center which can just keep it dry and cool uh, 
is great. It will last for thousands of years, which is unlike any other information storage medium we've used since we carved things in stone. As well as standing the test of time, the storage density of DNA is tiny. To put it in perspective, you could fit all the information in a football field-sized data centre into the space of a sugar cube, or all the information on the entire internet into a shoebox. It's almost impossible to describe you know, how small it is. You're talking nanometers per link in this chain of the molecule. Uh, and it's way, way smaller uh, than any other um, system we have for storing information at the moment. And it looks like it will be a long time before you know, disk, hard disk drives achieve the same density of information storage. And we won't have to worry about the technology going out of date, like the floppy disk or the CD or even the DVD. Because now we know the structure of DNA, there will always be a way to access the information. Because as humans, we will always want to understand the genetic makeup of ourselves and other living things. So it's kind of future-proofed that we know there will always be a reader, at least as long as there's humans with advanced technology, there will be a DNA reader. But there are also many difficulties with scaling the technology. One of the hardest parts is actually making the synthetic strands of DNA from scratch. It's very expensive and it's slow. We knew right from the start that this wasn't ready to be a technology kind of to roll out for the whole world to use. And the biggest bottleneck then, and it's still true, is the synthesis, the creation, writing of DNA. Uh, and that's, that's very expensive. Um, at the moment. There's only a small number of specialist companies that can do that as a commercial service. Now, startups and big businesses are attempting to make this form of data storage faster and cheaper. And we'll explore more on this topic right after this quick break. Welcome back to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson. And as we look at the push to move our data future across to our genetic past, there are a number of companies focused on this technology. One is a startup called Catalog DNA. They're determined to solve the data crisis, and they've already been quite successful. In early July, they reported that they could store all of the text in Wikipedia, around 16 gigabytes worth of text, in a small vial. And unlike Nick Goldman's team, They don't make the DNA from scratch. Instead, they use enzymes to modify existing DNA in cells. Bigger tech players have also invested in DNA data storage. In 2016, Microsoft, in collaboration with the University of Washington, stored 200 megabytes of data in DNA. It was a world record at that particular point in time. And in March 2019, they built the first automated DNA storage system. Here's Chris Takahashi again. Both internally and and within the community, there's actually several ways to write DNA and several ways to read DNA. And um, they all require different laboratory techniques. Um, So what we wanted to do was was make a more general purpose uh, device to automate some of these, these processes you can't really expect in the future a data center to have uh, scientists running around. 
Um, it's just not, you know, financially feasible. While Chris and his team use a robotic process, it's still pretty slow and it takes a whole day to code and decode data. The short-term applications are more um, archival data storage where you have really important data. You want to make sure that, that you can read it back, um, you know, decades from now, um, but you're not really concerned with, with writing it quickly. But the potential is still enormous, particularly in DNA's ability to withstand time. So a good way to sort of picture this, the durability of DNA is um, a lot of people have read in the news, they've dug up old mammoth bones that are, are thousands of years old, and they've actually been able to sequence the genomes uh, from those bones, from those thousands of year old bones. Um, so yeah, that's testament to the, the durability of DNA. And the next step his team is focusing on is building a search protocol for images. You break down a picture into what you believe are the basic elements. And then you say, okay, well, I want all the pictures with just a, a cat in them. So find me all the ones that have those basic cat-like elements and, and retrieve them. Um, and computers are fairly good at this, uh, but it takes a lot of computational power. Uh, it turns out that by simply exploiting the way DNA base pairs, we can actually do a similar process, but in chemistry rather than in a computer. So we can actually get the rules of chemistry to compute image similarity in DNA for us. And Nick Goldman is working on a related idea. More specifically, he's interested in how you could generally search through data in DNA quickly, in the same way that the memory in your computer works. We're working on... Um, some systems for doing something analogous to random access memory. So that's something, you know, the ability to dip into your stored information and pull out just the bit you want is fine on computers. We don't even think about that anymore. Uh, With DNA storage, currently it's harder. So we've been working on how you do random access to your memory. And his team are really focused on trying to limit the error rate that occurs when you read DNA data. Any physical system like this for storing information, all the steps along the way uh, are prone to a certain rate of error. And that's okay. We can deal with that just fine with error correcting codes, just like digital TV or mobile phones use all the time. Um, But we need to know what kind of errors we get and how they affect this specific way of storing information so that we can make the most efficient codes. And we've been working a bit on understanding the error rates of DNA storage. And with success, he thinks this technology could be accessible and reliable within the next decade. If we can improve the way we create, synthesize DNA, we're looking at maybe five years before this is a service that is sold to people that have highly valuable information. It won't be you and me at home storing our family photos or our bank statements or or anything. It'll be too expensive for that and existing technologies are pretty much adequate. for that kind of thing. And Nick says that even if we can manage to get the technology working for home use, it won't really move beyond being a long-term data storage system. 
I don't think it will be the primary form for everyday use. It seems unlikely it will catch up with and overtake existing technologies, you know, hard disk drives, thumb drives, this kind of thing. They are really good. They're very convenient. They're developing as well and improving gradually over time too. And I don't see that DNA will replace those. I think we're looking at the long-term storage of information and all that stuff even the stuff that gets uploaded to Facebook that, to be honest, we don't ever look at again, but we kind of like knowing it's there, you know, pictures of our cat from three years ago. Um, people like that to exist, but it's not efficient to have that on a hard disk drive system. So I think the long term archiving will move over to some other form of data storage. And I think DNA is a viable candidate. For that, I'm not going to say it's going to be the one that wins out. There's lots of other good projects out there too, um, but it's a really interesting one to study. But nevertheless, researchers will push the tech to its limits, including artist and biologist Joe Davis. His latest project has involved reviving long-dead microorganisms called extremophiles and storing data in their DNA. And these organisms have been very similar to a contemporary organism called um Halobacterium salinarum. It's not really a bacteria in spite of its name. It's an archaeon, which is a, a third family of life. Um, but it can, you can expose it to huge doses of gamma rays uh, with cobalt-60 irradiators and so many, so much radiation that it busts up the genome of the bacteria, of the uh, archaeon, and it, it reassembles itself and starts reproducing within several hours. It can withstand vacuum and extremes of temperature that uh, that common bacteria cannot. And given this longevity, by putting information into their DNA, Joe is hoping that he can create the longest-lasting archive of human information, an archive that could potentially outlast the existence of the human race. We get to create the world's longest lasting archives ever created. No one has ever, until now, no one has ever um, modified such an organism with with messages, with human intellectual information. This episode of Moonshot was hosted and edited by me, Christopher Lawson, with research and scripting from our intern, Maddie Traster. Our artwork is by Andrew Millist, and our music in this episode is by Breakmaster Cylinder. And don't forget, if you head on over to moonshot.audio, you can find an archive of all our episodes along with transcripts for most of the shows. Plus, if you want to get bonus episodes, an ad-free feed of the podcast, and a daily newsletter about the future, check out Moonshot Daily. You'll find a link to that in our show notes. See you next time.